You're listening to episode 18 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to episode 18, which is part two of managing your child's behavior. This is obviously a follow-on discussion that I had with registered psychologist Helen Samoulis. She's a Sydney-based psychologist. And we continue our conversation in today's episode when it comes to managing behaviors um, that are really related to children who have additional needs or a diagnosis going on and behaviors that occur that are secondary to those um, various conditions, if you like. So without further ado, we'll get right into part two of having a chat with Helen Samoulis when it comes to managing your child's behavior. So joining me today for part two of managing your child's behavior is Helen Samoulis. So she joined us for part one. She is a registered psychologist who has worked with children, adolescents and families in the capacity of assessment and counseling for over 20 years. This has been in clinic settings as a school counselor and in private practice. Helen also teaches undergrad and postgrad counselling psychology students who are looking at working with children and families. She works from a positive growth framework to ensure that children, adolescents and their families experience a sense of empowerment to address any opportunities for growth and understanding that present themselves within their day-to-day situations. Welcome back, Helen. Thank you for joining us for part two. Thanks, Sonia, for having me again. So in part one, we had quite an extensive conversation about managing children's behavior and we touched on things such as, you know, positive parenting strategies and ways to communicate with our children, you know, ways to manage or respond to tantrums and things like that. So for anyone listening who missed out on part one, I encourage you to have a listen to that. Today, we're really chatting about some underlying causes that may exist for children that are causing them to have behavior issues. So we're just going to start with that, Helen, to continue our conversation. What would be some of the common causes that children present to you with or families come to you with where there is an underlying issue that's causing those behavior difficulties? So I suppose there could be medical issues that we would probably need to rule out that may be contributing to some of those behaviors. And that's I usually work in conjunction with a GP or paediatrician to explore that and with families. So some of those medical issues might be things like, you know, gut issues or sleep issues, chronic middle ear infections, all those sort of underlying difficulties that kids do present with, particularly in the zero to seven years where they might be more likely to be experiencing some of those manifestations and, and aren't able to especially the younger kids who don't have language skills that at the point where they can express themselves or that they can express how uncomfortable they're feeling, they can definitely present as um, behavioural manifestations. So I suppose that's one of the things that we look at as a first line of exploration around behaviours. And then following that, we look at any environmental, situational sort of situations that might be happening within the family or at school or any disruptions or issues around sort of challenges that the child's experiencing, whether it is at home or at school, uh, that may be resulting in them having those 
outward behaviours. We also look at whether there's any anxiety there as well as we mentioned last session because that can sometimes manifest as an externalised way with behaviour situations coming up for kids as well. So how do we tell, and obviously there's professionals listening as well as parents and carers, how do we understand what is a typical versus non-typical kind of behaviour? I suppose what I generally look at is whether it's a new behaviour, if it's something that has always been part of the child's sort of repertoire for expressing something that they're unhappy about or if there's a pattern there already established that is not a new pattern. Mm -hmm then we explore that and see if it is a behaviour that they've learnt and re- it's been reinforced by something that's happening in terms of parent responses to, to the behaviour or anything else or school responses to the behaviour. If it is that there is a new behaviour that has been escalating within you know, the last whatever time frame, then that's where we try and um, look back at what changes have occurred and also look at whether there's been anything different that is happening for the child in terms of not just the environment but health and those areas as well. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, you would have families coming in where there's already a diagnosis of something going on and children that do have additional support needs. And in, in some of those circumstances, you know, the children, I guess, are not able to comprehend a lot of, say, some of the more mainstream strategies that are used. So how do you go about helping a child who does is compromised with their comprehension how do you work it that way? Because in that instance, there's concerns for the child's safety, for other people's safety. How does it work? I think when there is a diagnosis there, and certainly behaviours can be an extension of some of diagnostic profiles that kids present with, for example, the ADHD type presentations, oppositional position to find sort of presentations, autism spectrum disorder presentations. So we look at what may fit into those profiles and may be an extension of some of the challenges that might be experienced as symptomatic of those, those conditions. And then we look at what is happening outside of that as well and, and whether there's the need for treatment or intervention as an add-on to what's happening um, diagnostically for the young person as well. So is there a case study or someone that you can describe for us, a child you can describe for us where you've had to, I guess, assess them, of course, and can you describe what was going on for the child and the family and then what you did for intervention and how it helped? Okay. In terms of a child that has been diagnosed or a child yeah. that diagnosis? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I suppose, I mean, one that does come to mind which has been a recent one, was a child who was on the spectrum and had a recent diagnosis. They had just gone through an adjustment of commencing school, say kindergarten, and in preschool that the child did have a lot of supports in place and they did have a structure in place that helped the child sort of feel comfortable and safe and there was sensory work that was happening at the preschool as well for the child. So in their transition to school, the transition period wasn't as intense as what it perhaps should have been and what was requested because the school had their own framework in place of what they usually do for transitions for kids who do have that diagnosis. And I suppose that's where in that transition a lot of this child's individual needs weren't necessarily accounted for 
in the framework that they did have in place. So the child was not much in the way of sensory, sensory breaks or sensory input at the school. There was structure, but they were expected to follow a certain sort of format of the day, which was expecting a lot of this young person and definitely their difficulties with relating to peers was not accounted for. They, they weren't sort of supported in a playground setting. So whereas previously behavioural manifestations were usually when a child was feeling overwhelmed mm-hmm. and because they had difficulty expressing themselves in terms of how they were feeling and identifying what was happening for them, it would usually be reactive behaviours, lashing out at parents or hurting a younger sibling. But that was generally prior to school starting. It was generally pretty much under control and things were going okay. When school started, we saw a huge escalation in these behaviours to the extent where the child was getting suspended for aggressive behaviour towards other students and their symptoms of ASD were actually seeming a lot, even though they were level one, their symptoms were looking more level two, level three because of the distress the child was experiencing. So in terms of looking at intervention, we worked together with a speech therapist and the occupational therapist and worked with the school as well in with regards to putting in place some strategies for him at school and liaised with the learning support team and kept consistently happening at home. So he had a partial attendance for a little while until he was ready to go back full time. We looked at some strategies around sort of recognising feelings and doing sort of a feelings thermometer, having visuals, so visual charts where he couldn't verbally express how he was feeling. He could show his teacher what was happening and use similar things at home really incorporate a lot of the sensory stuff and body work into what was going on as well. And it did take close to a term to get him back to being full-time at school, but he did certainly go back in a more sort of happier way and less distress. And we did certainly notice the behaviours de-escalating and being quite manageable again. So that was quite a good sort of outcome in that scenario. Absolutely. So I think what would you say would be have been the key to success for that individual? Was it the teamwork and everyone coming together and just saying, okay, how can we make this work for this individual? And that does take a lot of time and coordination. So would that have been the key? Oh, look, I think essentially because the, the school didn't have any experiences of this young person previous to him starting kindergarten, they felt that mainstream was not the right setting for him so they had already decided that fairly early on and because I had been involved with the family from quite early days I knew that he did have the capacity to be mainstream under the right circumstances and I suppose in talking with the school about this and saying these are the thing the adjustments that would be helpful for this young person can we give it a go they noticed a different side to him which we had already known from previous and made it work so I suppose that team approach was essential for that. Also recognising what was behaviours resulting from ASD and what was actually behaviours resulting from environmental changes that weren't properly handled was very important. So I think rather than blaming the disorder or blaming the child, which we tend to look at the behaviour rather than the child, we were able to then look at, okay, well, let's see what we can do environmentally to help alleviate some of that stress and then the child was able to respond 
and also upskill the child in terms of dealing what was appropriate in a preschool setting to a kindergarten setting was a bit different as well. So we had to look at some skills around how he could use the visuals and how he could use his timeouts in a more appropriate way because there was also the learning environment that we had to take into account. So he couldn't have a lot of breaks necessarily if learning is involved. We had to try and manage that around what was essential for him to participate in. Absolutely. And I think what you kind of touching on also is being able to empower as much as possible the individual, like the child, teaching them some self-help strategies and I guess helping them to help themselves. And that can be really challenging and it does take, I guess, a level of cognitive ability as well to be able to do that. But that certainly is an important aspect of it, absolutely. I think for many parents and families who do have children that have additional needs, there is a lot of anxiety and I see it at the clinic as well where parents look ahead to, you know, all the years to come and they just think, what does the future look like for my child, particularly when they are so dependent on carers, on teachers, on other professionals? How do you respond to that and what's kind of some very general advice that you would share in in those situations? Look, I think I had been previously trained in RDI, which is Relationship Development Intervention, and it's a family systems-based therapy. And Steve Goodstein had, I remember one of his early conferences, he had a saying, life is, oh, sorry, life is as a marathon, not a sprint. So I think that's what I share with families as well, that it is about being able to follow the child on their journey. And there will be challenges and obstacles along the way, but there's no reason why we can't look at remediation of symptom experiences for any child, whether they are under a diagnosis or not diagnosis. We just have to sort of work on sort of a bit of a plan together with families and any other external sort of providers or or schools that might be, you know, caring for this child. So I think being able to have open communication, to be sort of real around what's happening for the young person and just help the family and the child sort of manage the scenarios as they come up and the different transitions as they get older, then we give them the best opportunity to have a successful life in their their teenage and adult years. Yes, absolutely. And I think also what comes to mind is the classroom setting and for the professionals listening who are working in a classroom situation and they too can find it challenging when there is one or more than one student who does have challenging behaviours, what would be kind of your core advice to the professionals? I think, again, what we mentioned last week where we look at, rather than looking at the behaviour, look at the motivation behind the behaviour. And for any given student, I think within schools these days, it is really difficult for teachers because there is a huge expectation that there is a differentiation across not only ability, but also in terms of looking at additional needs that students have in their class as well. And a lot of that falls onto teachers to be able to differentiate and not only teach, but also be a support to a lot of students within that class setting. So I think being able to have quite firm boundaries within the class system, but also being alert to some of the behaviours that may be there as a result of something else and being able to work with in a collaborative way with the family to try and get to the bottom of what's happening, why is it happening, how can we try and make this a better scenario for this young person is 
the best way to go. I think where it becomes difficult is if the teacher's saying, I'm seeing this this in my classroom, you need to go and see a paediatrician or you need to go and see a psychologist and get it sorted. I think that puts parents a little bit on the defensive. Yeah. <laughs> so if it's able to be a collaborative approach, let's see what's happening, what's going on, is there anything that's changed, can we work together to try and have a bit of a plan, I think that's always a better approach and we definitely see better outcomes coming from that. And it might be they need to see a paediatrician or psychologist if they haven't already done so, but I think if it's approached in a way where it is that open communication and there is that collaboration, then parents are more likely to be able to take that on board in a more proactive way. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that also comes to mind, Helen, is in all of there's always challenges with parents and professionals caring for themselves. And so I wonder, have you got any handy tips or strategies for parents, carers and professionals to help them look after themselves so they can be at their best because it can be quite draining, I guess, and difficult and some days are better than others. But are there any kind of key strategies you could suggest? Yeah, look, I think essentially just being able to be mindful with how we're coping, how we're feeling, not being afraid to ask for help ourselves. I think sometimes we do take on a bit too much and feel it's all our responsibility. So I think if we're able to say, okay, well, this is what I can accomplish and this is where I can delegate this or where I can get help from from here, leaving time for ourselves as well. Within any family, there are so many multiple relationships happening within, you know, the context of a working unit. So, and within that, we've got the individual person as well as the marriage or the partnership or the sibling relationships or the parent and child relationships. So there's lots of different aspects that need nurturing. And if we're constantly giving and giving to any one of those relationships and ignoring any of the others, then that's where we find that imbalance then can create a sense of burnout for that individual and result in less coping happening for them and also subsequently for other family members as well. So just being mindful of what is happening for you as an individual and the family unit and being able to ask for help, I think, is a big one. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very important messages there. Thank you, Helen. We've covered a lot this episode and very much looked at, as we said earlier, just how do we take that next step for children that do have those additional support needs. And in terms of anyone that is not coping or concerned or feels like they do need that extra help themselves for their children, we obviously, you'd obviously recommend touching base with their doctor, their psychologist, any other recommendations that you have? Yeah, so I think being able to have a support network, that's including family support, friend support, but also professional support, especially with looking at touching base with GPs, with paediatricians, with psychologists, and having a network that works for that individual and the family is very important. And yeah, seeking those supports out as necessary, I think is a vital message and that it's okay to do that. Yeah. It's actually an empowering, it's almost an empowering thing for individuals to feel like it's almost like a permission to ask for help. Yes. And I think that's an important thing to take home, I suppose. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Helen, for joining us for part two of Managing Your Child's Behaviour. I really appreciate your time. That's okay. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Helen.
And that concludes the part two episode of Managing Your Child's Behavior with Helen Samoulis. Very valuable conversation there and a very sensitive topic to talk about as well. Um, and I think she brings home some very important points, which are that, you know, in all the caring that we do as parents and professionals, um, we also need to look at caring for ourselves, which is very, very important. So if you haven't listened yet to part one, please do so. Uh, that is a conversation or a chat that I have with Helen, which discusses general behavior management strategies and principles. If you have any other questions or concerns for your child or the children you're working with, of course, seek additional support and um, advice from your relevant medical professional. Coming up next episode, we're continuing the theme a little with my chat to psychologists. I'll be chatting to a different psychologist on the topic of childhood anxiety. Um, it's certainly been on the rise in previous years, and I'd like to chat more about you know, why is that occurring? Um, what are we noticing in today's children um, that is I guess, causing the anxiety? How do we know the signs and symptoms of it? And what are the best ways that we can really um, help to manage anxiety so that it's not having such an impact on the quality of life for our children? So please ensure you join me for the chat about childhood anxiety next episode. If you did enjoy this episode, please remember to share it with family, friends, and colleagues. And also feel free to leave a review um, on the website. If you haven't already seen the website, chataboutchildren.com, chataboutchildren.com. There are some valuable resources and free eBooks there that you can access and also join the mailing list for any updates and newsletters. I appreciate your attention. I celebrate you. Take care and chat soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich, www.chataboutchildren.com.